Hey, founders. Welcome to the No Nerds, No Problem podcast. This week's guest is user research consultant, Nikki Anderson. Talking to customers is arguably the most important thing you can do as a non-technical founder, and Nikki is an absolute expert. I learned a lot. The episode is a blast. I hope you enjoy. Hey, hey, founders. Welcome to this episode of the No Nerds, No Problem podcast. Today's guest is Nikki Anderson, founder at user, userresearchacademy.com. Uh, we're going to be talking all things user research. So this is a huge thing that's super important to founders. Uh, actually talking to your customers, getting feedback from them. And it's something that a lot of, especially non-technical founders, people who don't have product experience, it's something that you probably don't have experience with. So today we're going to learn a lot. Um, and I'm going to kick it over to Nikki Anderson. Welcome to the show. Uh, please tell us a little bit about what you do. Yeah. Um, so thank you for that intro. I'm super excited to be here today uh, talking about user research. Um, uh, I'm a bit biased it is important to me. Uh, <laughs> so as a user researcher, I can call out my own biases. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I have been in the user research field for about like eight or nine years. Um, I stepped out of like my full-time in-house role and I currently mentor people in user research. I do a lot of writing on the topic of user research. Pretty much I have user research coming out of my ears. Uh, <laughs> I, I do everything and anything that I can for the user research community. And that includes um, also helping companies uh, with understanding the value and how to scale or start with user research. So um, that that kind of work is very near and dear to my heart, which is why I'm super excited to be on here, hopefully helping some of you understand how you can understand your customers or potential customers. So a little later in the show, we'll jump into some of your specific material you have on your site, some of the courses you have and everything. Yeah. Um, but to start off, let's talk about early stage user research. So maybe you don't even have a product yet. This is the place that a lot of people, a lot of our clients where we work with people, they, they get so obsessed about uh, this kind of big vision they have and they need to have all of that vision done before they'll talk to anybody about it, right? They kind of want to paint in a cave and tell everything's perfect. Uh, let's talk about early stage user research. What does that process look like? What recommendations do you have for founders who are trying to learn about the product before they built it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is, I would say, the most important stage to start including user research because it also gets you comfortable with it and in a habit of doing that. Um, but I completely understand. I'm a fiction writer and my husband has begged me to read stuff that I am writing and I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, I, it needs to be perfect. And I, I suffer from, uh, being a perfectionist. So I used to not share slide decks and personas and anything with anybody, um, until they were perfect, which ended up meaning that I was doing a lot of extra work, fixing them when people had questions and feedback. <laughs> um, so I quickly learned that, um, sharing things early with people is super important. Um, and if you have an idea, um, what's really great about just talking to people about that idea, having conversations with people about the idea, what's super great about doing that early stage is it's actually really low stakes, right? So the earlier you get into talking to people, the more low stakes it is for you to like explore the idea. If you're waiting until something is like absolutely perfect until you've put like blood, sweat and tears into it and worked millions of hours on it, like that's gonna be a high stakes conversation for you. And it's gonna put on a lot of pressure, not only on yourself, but on like anybody else who has worked on it, the people that you're talking to. Um, so by incorporating this earlier stage research, 
we, we just give ourselves the space to explore things yeah. in a creative way. And like, that can look like things like just having conversations with people about the problem. And this is where it's really important, the problem that you're trying to solve mm-hmm. to understand if that is a problem or not. And like, really, I'm talking like conversations. You don't need to go in like loaded with a script and like all of these like complex questions. It's having these conversations, these open conversations with people. That cycle of uh, building, working, you know, internally, that fear that builds up. Uh, We had a client that uh, after I was working this back when I was a freelancer, um, we were pushing towards launch and they were non-technical founders. This was their first app and they were so um, concerned with launch. They were so obsessive about what's well, got to be a big launch. We've got to time things. We've got this event. We want to launch at Coachella. We have to have it. We can't touch it until we go to Coachella. Um, and yeah. the end result is that they've actually still, that was a couple of years ago, they're still still working towards launch. And it's been like three or four years of development before they've actually publicly launched, getting in that habit of, hey, this is, this is a, a work in progress, but can you tell me about it? Can you talk to me about it? Is huge. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because like, it not only saves your sanity <laughs> in a way, <laughs> but you know, like you you end up creating something or being a part of something that's inherently more impactful, right? Mm-hmm. If, 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 we, um, if we covet our ideas so much, we run the risk of creating something that people will not care about and will not use because they, they might've been born from a problem that we were facing, but we have to understand that like, our experiences are not everybody else's as, as, as much as like there is a shared human experience and certain things suck, you know, like, um, we need to, we need to really understand if we are solving a problem and, and make sure that the, the way that we're solving a problem or the problem that we're trying to solve is not being solved already in Mm -hmm. a fantastic way, you know, and like kudos to those people who like came up with that fantastic, uh, solution to the problem. But like, there, there are, I mean, there are plenty of problems in this world. Find one that matters. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's yeah. Uh, a few years ago. I was trying to write about this stuff. Um, I way over designed the system for talking about this stuff. But one of the things that I yeah. do like about it is um, there's, I call these things primary problems versus secondary problems. And a primary yeah. problem is, is just like a thing that is, that comes up in your everyday life. A secondary problem is a problem that comes up through your use of a solution to a primary problem. And this is where a lot of uh, iterative ideas and where nowadays I would argue there's very few open greenfield blue ocean primary problems. If something sucks about life, someone has thought about it. Someone is trying to solve it. Nowadays, the majority of good problems to solve are secondary problems. Someone has Salesforce. And yeah, it's great for 90% of the use cases, but they hate something about that other 10%. And this can be a place where you can figure out by talking to people, oh, I have this idea, it's a CRM. And it's like, oh yeah, there's hundreds of CRMs. You could say, okay, well, then I'm just going to quit. Or you could say, okay, cool. But why are there hundreds? What is it about each one of these that people do or don't like? And what could I do differently? Yeah, exactly. There no product is perfect and no product will 100% solve everybody's use case. So 
Um, for instance, today I was struggling because uh, I was using an invoicing software that didn't have enough automation. So I went back to an old invoicing software that I used to use that had like all the automation, but then they don't let me charge uh, invoice in multiple currencies. <laughs> and I'm here like being like, okay, great. And they're like, oh, if you want to, you cre- you can create multiple brands to create multiple different types of invoices so that you can invoice in multiple currencies. And I'm sitting here like, it's a wonder that I don't throw my computer out the window. You know, like <laughs> there, there are plenty, there are plenty of people who have problems with the current products that mm-hmm. are there that you could leverage the products that are there and what's working and add on to like the problems that are like continuing through the secondary ones that you were talking about that are continuing through no matter what. Right. Yeah. Let's talk about sourcing because one of the problems I think a lot of um, when we're starting out, once you have users, it's easy to send out a survey. It's easy to reach out to them. You, you have their emails or, or, or you have phone numbers maybe even. Um, let's talk about before you have customers, you've got an idea, you want to do some research on it. What methods do you recommend for finding folks who might be interested in talking to you, reaching out to them, getting their buy-in, any suggestions there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there are cheap ways to do it. And there are, um, if you have a lot of money, uh, very expensive ways to do it. Uh, so depending where you are on that spectrum, um, you can self-select. Um, obviously, if you have more money, recruitment and sourcing suddenly becomes a lot easier. Um, however, what I would say is one of the most important things that you can do, no matter where you are on that spectrum of budget, um, is talk to people who are using your competitors. That's your goldmine um, are those people that are using your competitors because kind of what we were just talking about with like Salesforce or the invoicing software that I am using, those people will have those secondary problems, right? They can voice them and, and they can explain them to you in, in a way and they can also tell you what's working, right? Mm-hmm. What not to focus on. Right. So no matter where you are, competitor, like people who are using your competitors are the bread and butter of like starting, especially if you don't have a product. Um, so that would be like my first first big thing of advice. Um, in terms of sourcing um, and and finding people on the lower end of the budget, it's reaching out to people that you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I what I try and always say is like one degree of separation. Mm-hmm. So not the friends and family, but friends and family of the friends and family. Right. Um, So that you're not 100% biased because, you know, I, well, you know, uh, there are some spouses maybe who who, who would (laughs) give you their honest feedback, but, um, but, you know, you might not listen. Um, So um, (laughs) one degree of separation or even two, if you can, is super helpful. And, And that's like, you can use kind of a snowball effect of that. So if you have a colleague and you're like, hey, can you recommend a colleague? And then they do. And then you talk to that person. And then can you recommend another person and try and have that snowball effect? Um, You can also go on to like, let's say you're, this is a little bit less applicable with like niche products, but let's say um, you are, you have like a competitor that's either Salesforce or like some sort of invoicing software or something that's like used regularly, check Reddit. Mm -hmm. See if yep. there's like people on Reddit complaining about it and see what they have to say. Like Reddit's a great place. If you're trying to like understand a certain group of people, try Facebook, right? Try Facebook groups who are like involved with this. You can also try LinkedIn groups that are like an, within that topic. Um, so those are some really great ways to like try and find your own. It's a slower process. Mm-hmm. 
goes faster is if you can offer them something in return for their time. Um, but if you want to get fancy and you have the means to do so, there are plenty of like recruitment agencies that are super good at targeting the kinds of people that you're looking for. Uh, so something like userinterviews.com, userzoom, like those are very popular um, recruitment agencies that can help you with sourcing um, the people that you need. Um, but really like look at groups, like Slack mm-hmm. groups. Slack yeah. has a bunch of groups yeah. on it. Um, uh, what's the, um, uh, oh gosh, Discord. Mm-hmm. Discord has a bunch of groups. Like there, you can go and find people in those communities and ask them about their experiences. And again, like it's low stakes, right? right? right. Um, you know, like if you do ask complete strangers, the great thing about it is if they bash your idea, you, <laughs> you're never going to like, you're really never going to see them again. Right. But like one degree of separation, like maybe gets back to you where it's like, oh, the, that guy, you know, but like at least like the strangers, you know, you you never have to see them again. Right. Yeah, yeah. The the one degree separation, you either get uh, people who are too nice, in which case the feedback's yeah. useless, or you're yeah. going to bring up some like deep seated issues you have with your parents because they brought up like how yeah. you, you know, the reason why you're failing at this is the same reason why you didn't do that thing back in high school, right? You know, like, yes, yeah, yeah. It becomes a options. different conversation. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, the the Slack, Reddit, Facebook group. Uh, this is something that Amy Hoy, uh, thirty by five hundred. She she calls these watering holes, right? Um, yeah. And in in twenty twenty two, like it's crazy. In one of her pieces, she talks about she uh, what was it? She was remodeling her kitchen, and and she found a forum, an entire forum, not just like a part of a forum, an entire forum about like re. It was cabinet like finishing building cabinets paint like and there was like thousands of people that are just <laughs> sitting there talking about cabinets right it's yep. there there are watering holes whatever your niche is it doesn't matter how weird it gets in fact it might even be there might be more niches for the weirder it gets but like reddit is so great slack groups there's so many places where these people are meeting and talking online yeah yeah absolutely my my husband is a model train enthusiast we have a garden railway. I never thought that I would have a have a train in my garden. I never thought that those people existed. Lo and behold, there are a lot of places to find them. You know, so like you're right. Like there, like the internet is a place for these things. So like you can find those people. It just it it takes time mm-hmm. to do so. And so like if if you're concerned, like what you can do is. Like, we don't want to wait. I just, I just said early and often and like sharing things like, and if this is taking you time, default to like the colleague's colleague, mm-hmm. right? And as you're talking to the colleague's colleague or the friend's friend, source these other people so that at least you are having initial conversations. Like don't block yourself. Right. This is yeah. where also having, working on something that is near and dear to your own heart is is critical as well. Because if you, yeah. uh, You'll see it sometimes, especially this is more on the technical founder side of things where some engineer brain, I'm an engineer, so I'm, I'm talking about myself too, uh, thinks that they found the solution to moms meeting up with their kids in the park, even though they don't have kids, they're not married, you know, all these things. And, and you see this all the time. You see this, especially with technical founders. They've, they've solved logistics, even though they've never dealt with a supply chain in their life. If you are dealing with a problem that is something that's near and dear to you, something you experience, it's pretty easy to find peers because they're your peers. You're friends with these people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like we find ourselves in very 
like, like my surrounding ourselves with like-minded people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also important that you don't ascribe your experience to like right. the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be cool, but then we would have like five products, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's why we don't. That's why, as you said, we have like hundreds of CRMs mm-hmm. because there are, there are a lot of problems to solve. There are a lot of different experiences that people have. And there are a lot of people going out there trying to solve things that, don't necessarily make sense. Yeah, yeah. The, there's two big, big high-profile uh, downturn casualties. Uh, Fast and Bolt are are two that we've been talking about a lot in the news recently, mm-hmm. and, and they're payment, they're online payment companies, right? Like that was supposed to have been solved in the early 2000s by PayPal, and then Stripe came around in 2008, so it was supposed to be solved again, right? Like you know, yeah. if you had said in five years ago that the big investment area would be pay online payments. I think people would be like, yeah. well, that sounds a little silly, right? So there's always room for, for new solutions. Let's talk yeah. about now that we've, we've sourced, uh, I've got, you know, a list of five people, either people that I reached out to friends of friends, colleagues of colleagues I've sourced, uh, from these watering holes, I've gone to Reddit and I've got a good list of people that are willing to talk to me. How do I enter into this actual interview and get value out of it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is where it is important first to like let the participant, so we'll call them participants, let these participants know like what you're expecting from them. So that is like the first the first thing that you can do that will make sure that you get value because I, I have seen a lot of researchers who like are talking to be or or just people who want to understand and solve solve problems who are talking to people um and like have have set up these, these, these times to talk to people. And what happens is the person on the other side has never had this kind of conversation before and is sitting there like, what about, what are you expecting of me? Right. So like write down like what you would like to get out of that session. So that person understands what they, what kind of information you are expecting from them, because it makes the conversation like a lot more smooth Mm -hmm. um, and it puts them at ease. You know, um, there's, there's a lot of anxiety that can come from having these kinds of conversations on both sides. Um, So um, starting it off with like understanding what you want out of the conversation without trying to be leading is, is like one of the best things that you can do. Um, The second thing that you can do um, to kind of, um, get value out of, of the, I'm not going to call it an interview. I'll call it a conversation. Um, to get value out of the conversation is challenge yourself and Mm -hmm. your assumptions. So I do this to people all the time that are about to go into interviews. Um, or, um, I do it myself. Um, there, we hold biases and we hold assumptions. We hold hypotheses. We hold things that we wish were true in our minds. And when you go into conversations with people, there are a lot of times where we can end up leading them down a path that they did not intend to go down. Mm-hmm. And that is just, we might not do it on purpose. Uh, very rarely we actually do. Um, and so what I always do before, um, before my interviews is I write down those assumptions or those biases mm-hmm. uh, or the, the ways that I might be leading somebody down a conversation um, so I was working at a, a social media man, um, a social media platform company, um, and we were talking to social media managers. And I had never spoke. I, I don't know anything about them. I was new right. at the company. Like I, I had no idea who these people were. And so I, I interviewed like some of my colleagues to like understand 
what they thought of these people and like what they knew about these people. And everybody, all my colleagues were kind of like, yeah, they're kind of like ditzy. Like don't really like know what they're doing. Like, like they're, they're, they lose track of things. Like, like, and, and I was like, okay, cool. That's your experience. And I wrote those things down because those were in my mind when I went in to talk to the, that person, which I could have 100% had those biases and confirmed them mm-hmm. because if they were in my mind. But then what I did is I was like, oh, this is like a bias that I'm holding. And I asked and I asked and I realized these people are overworked right. and they're not ditzy. They're not, they don't just forget things. They're not just forgetful. They are completely overworked, burnt out, stressed, pressure coming from all sides. But then I understood that. I understood that. And that was the pain point that we could then go and solve for them. Mm -hmm. So like really recognizing like you're like challenging yourself, challenging Mm -hmm. your, your love of your idea and where that could lead a conversation by mistake before you even step into it. Yeah. 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 This is a, I was just reviewing with a client some of their, uh, we do sales and marketing reviews too, because um, it's something yeah. that I do all day at No Nerds. And so, I, and I love it. It's like my new, my new nerdy obsession is like, you know, sales systems, marketing systems. And one of the things that you see a lot in copy and in messaging is these, uh, these statements, uh, and it comes down to product too. It's they're, they're present in the product, they're present in the messaging around the product of, you know, you, you'll see people say, uh, Social media, the the number one concern of most people on social media is privacy. And and you go, is it? Like, are, is that, do you think that's really true? Because if that is true and you can defend that, that's great. But a lot of times people have these biases about their users, about their products, and they say these things. And it's like, if your product is hinging on something being true, you better make sure that thing is true. And you better be able to go, is this true? Let's go test that. Let's know this. So I, I love that comment about biases because it's super true. People have all of these beliefs, we'll call them, uh, and they're not willing to challenge them because it hurts, right? It hurts to, to say maybe I'm wrong. It does. It does. But, but most products do hinge off of something that needs to be true. You know, like mm-hmm. just that's, that's a great way of putting it. And like you need to, you need to be able to criticize your own idea and like break that idea down and break it apart because I promise you when you put it in front of people, they will do that for you right. too. So right. you have to be ready for that because if you, if you've criticized that idea, if you've, if you've questioned whether or not things are true and really like pushed yourself to understand these things, you are first going to be like, yeah, that, that is a problem with our software, right? Or that is a problem with our app. Right. And like, we are either going to fix it or you are not the market that we are then targeting. Right. So like it it helps you navigate beyond just that initial stage of product launch, because then you can understand your target market better. Then you can start to hone in on like, okay, what is it really that people are needing? Mm -hmm. But the fact that you can criticize your own idea and, and ask whether or not these things are true will get you to a place where at least some part of your app, your product, or whatever it may be, is necessary, mm-hmm. is useful. Yeah. Something that we push clients on a lot is um, when, you, when you just ask somebody if something would be nice, right? Like, hey, wouldn't this be great? A lot of people say, yeah, oh, yeah, that'd be great. There's no, there's no cost to me saying that it'd be great. So why wouldn't, like, why wouldn't that world you're describing be great? And then you turn around and you go, cool. 
like, here's a credit card form. I need $5. And they're like, well, this thing is stupid, right? <laughs> yeah. How do you, in this phase, when you don't have a product yet, you, you don't have a, a, a sales form, you're not sending out contracts, you're not trying to even sign LOIs yet. Um, how do you get around that bias, the bias of people to kind of just be positive for things when there's no cost? Yeah. So I, future-based questions are the bane of my existence in user research awesome. <laughs> because we cannot predict the future. We can think things will be cool. I can think that I'm going to go run a marathon and I can tell you right now it would be cool. But if you put me in sneakers and push me down the road, I will fight you kicking and screaming. You know, if you ask me to pay for a program to get me to run a marathon, suddenly I'm just going to go and pay for a cheeseburger mm -hmm. because that's what I really want. That's yep. what I really need in my life. Yep. Um, so like... We, we, we do not, we cannot predict the future. People cannot predict the future. People cannot predict us. Mm -hmm. Like we, we just aren't useful in predicting circumstances and where we might use something mm -hmm. later on, especially if the thing is not concrete. Right. Right. Um, so what I always say is whenever you are thinking about asking a future-based question, try to take it to the past. Mm -hmm. as much as you can. Because again, we all have competitors. People have all done these things before, right? right? Um, so where is it that you could turn that, would this be nice? Or would you use this into a past-based question? So for instance, if we take... Um, I, I went through this thing where I, I, like, I went for all like vegan cleaning products at one point. <laughs> um, and so what... And, and, and which, which was, it, it was a great experience and understanding like that, the switch behavior and what triggers, mm -hmm. what might trigger people. But like, I had never used them before. But what could happen is if you have this vegan, a whole vegan like cleaning line that you're looking to, to kind of create and sell to people, ask people, have you used this in the past? <laughs> right. Instead of asking, would you use this cleaning product, right. this vegan cleaning product that's perfect for the environment and like kind of like, low-key shaming people into saying, yes, I, of course, I would like to save our environment right. um, by paying like five extra dollars for this. Right. Ask them, have you used it in the past? No? Oh, why not? Right. You know, like, what, what is it? What is it? Like, you can always, always go to past behavior mm -hmm. because something that, something that I see is, is people making problems out of things that are not problems. Right. So like the vegan cleaning line is, is it's fantastic. It's great for the environment and you, you can get environmentalists behind it probably, but what's to say that they would switch from like their current vegan cleaning products to like your new stuff. Mm -hmm. So like whatever your new stuff has, your value prop, ask them if they've used something similar in the past. Right. 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 Take your value prop and like, have them rip it apart mm -hmm. by saying why they've never used something like that in the past. Like, right. no, I've never used vegan car cleaning solution in the past because that to me doesn't feel like it would work. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And, and they, they may not have used it in the past, but they better have looked for it. Right. Because that's a, that's a great answer too. Is like, well, yeah, I'm like, I, I've looked for it. But if the answer is, Oh no, I've never used it because it doesn't exist. You go, cool. Did you look? And they go, nah, well, they're not going to look for yours either, right? They're not going to suddenly have this desire to go search for something just because it exists. People search for things that don't exist all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And that very well might not be your target market, right? You like, just because one person says, mm -hmm. no, 
I, I, I've never used it. I wouldn't look for it. This is not like my thing. That might be, you might be able to say, cool, Bob over here is not our target market, you know, but let's go, let's go like an experiment and see like different types. Of, and this is where Reddit comes in. I'm sure there's lots of environmentalists on Reddit who are talking about these things. Right. Go and find some of them because they will probably be our target market, but also talk to people who might be like the in-between, like people who, you know, who might want to switch over, but mm-hmm. don't know how. Right. Right. So we talked about past-based behavior and how it's better to focus on the past-based behavior and the, the future-based behavior, unreliable answers in the future were, were bad predictors. What other sorts of questions are super valuable to ask in these conversations? Yeah, absolutely. So the example that you had brought up, that was, as I said, the bane of my existence, uh, <laughs> of the would this be, we, yeah. I just focused, you said, would this be nice? You know, would you use this? Um, uh, I just focused on the future-basedness of it. Um, but there is another component in there of like, would this be nice, right? We have, we all fall into the trap. I mean, most people do uh, fall into the trap of um, social desirability bias. Mm-hmm. We want people to like us. So if you come up to me and you ask me, um, do I look ugly you know, I'm going to probably say no. <laughs> or um, <laughs> does this look terrible on me? No. Does this look wonderful on me? Yeah, sure. You know, so like we, we naturally want people to like us and we fall into that trap even subconsciously. Um, and so, you know, when you ask people like, would this be nice? You know, would you, would you like this? People are more or less likely to say yes to that question, even if it's not something that they necessarily believe, right? So going backwards on that, how do you feel about this, right? Open-ended question. So mm-hmm. again, if, if somebody comes up to me, how do I look in this? I am much more likely to respond to them saying, oh, you look fine, but that's probably not the best choice. I mean, I would probably say it a lot nicer than that, but like I am, I am <laughs> that's not your, that's, that's not the journey for you today. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but like, <laughs> but the, the thing is, is like, we're starting from a point by asking, we, that's like opening up the door for people to have a comment mm-hmm. rather than answer a biased yes or no future-based question, mm-hmm. right? So how do you feel about this idea, right? How, how like, uh, talk to me, talk to me about how you feel about this mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, describe, describe some, some, some times where you've used something similar, Yep. Right. Rather than like, have you used something similar? Yes or no. We can go describe sometimes that you have used mm-hmm. something similar so, because the the entire crux of user research is stories. Mm-hmm. We're yep. looking for people's stories, their memories, their perceptions of what was going on in their environment during certain periods of times while they're using certain things. Right. And so by asking, like, how do you feel or describe a time when it was difficult? Uh, mm-hmm. Or um, explain, explain, you know, the last time you used something, we're getting stories. And that is what we need in order to understand whether or not our products make sense. Because if our products can't fit into people's storylines, they are not going to be used. Right. I want to I come back to the story thing because I think that's a super yeah. important direction. But I also just want to comment on the social, you call it, sorry, social desirability bias, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so that is such a big one. 
it's easy to focus on the fear or the, um, the, this is your baby, right? That you're talking about typically. And so it's easy to think like, oh, I'm the one who's nervous. I'm the one who's got all this, like, oh, I, I have to perform. I have to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. It's my conversation that I'm leading. So I've got to be the one that's doing the good job. But the other person is probably nervous too, especially uh, this is something that the difference between like B2B and B2C conversations I've noticed personally, when I get on the phone with CEOs about their problems, they are so to the point, so blunt. They're going to talk about the last three products they use, what they hated about each one. You can see this a lot of times uh, in, in if you've ever seen excerpts of Elon Musk talk about things where people ask him questions about, oh, why didn't you do this? Why did you try this? He'll just be like, no, we did try that. We talked about it for three months. It didn't work. So we moved on. Like it's like he's so to the point. Whereas when you get into a BBC, B, B2C context, especially if you're just dealing with kind of like normal people talking about their normal lives, people aren't used to breaking down their past experiences. They're not used to thinking critically at least in a, in a way that they can communicate. And so it's super important to recognize who am I talking to? What am I talking to them about? How comfortable are they? Are they nervous as hell? Do they think this is a really awkward, stilted conversation? How do I twist this so that they're comfortable? Yeah, yeah. The, I learned so much from being a participant in research. If you, if you go and you start to participate in research, I mean, chances are you'll also get paid that's kind of cool, but like go and participate in research and see how it feels. Mm -hmm. And also like, it's really cool to see, you know, to kind of see what people are doing to make, that makes you feel comfortable, what people are doing that makes you feel uncomfortable, how people are asking you questions that feel like they're leading you down a path, because that's a really great way to learn, you know, like I have, I've been through some, I mean, I also mentor people. So I watch their interviews and I have seen some like, you know, you know, when you're watching a TV show and you know, something bad is about to happen and you feel <laughs> embarrassed and like cringe for that person. Yeah. I have listened to my own interviews and felt that very same way. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That question is coming where I totally derailed things, right? Yeah. 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 The question of like, how much do you love our product <laughs> yes. is coming. Yeah. 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 And, and even as a professional, uh, you're going to make that mistake. Like I, I, I do tens of sales calls a week and, and even doing tens of these calls a week, every week I trip in a call and say the wrong thing at the wrong time. I switch to talking about solutions when I should be asking questions. I get too excited. Even as a professional, even after you're doing this, weekly, daily, uh, you're still going to make these mistakes sometimes. Absolutely. It's all, it's all a learning, you know, we're not robots. We're not, uh, the sentient AI, you know, like we will, (laughs) we will make mistakes. Um, and, and that's, that's fine because we are human. And Mm -hmm. like the, the thing is, the thing is just being aware of it. That's the most important thing is like being aware of your intention and why you're asking certain questions that way. And, and I do this all the time in, in research. If I've asked a bad question to a participant, I will say, oh, stop, you know, let me reword that. Actually, I will stop my uh, stop mm-hmm. the entire conversation to reword it. And that is fine to do. The story thing ties into this perfectly. We yes. are human. Uh, we are all humans. And story is the the base unit of informational transfer that humans use and so yes. when we and, and at its root a story is as a character and a conflict and that's it the, the rest is is 
secondary, right? If we have a person experiencing a problem, we've just now started the story. And I'm, I'm not going to nerd out too much, but but there's actually really great uh, science behind this too, where there's something that the, the brain switches patterns when we introduce this character in conflict. You, your brain literally goes, oh, something important is about to happen. I need to listen. And, and maybe that's because I'm going to tell a story about how my brother got eaten by a lion and you need to know, hey, like if I listen to this, maybe I won't get eaten by the lion, right? Okay. So story is like super, super important. It's why we, we talk about it in sales. It's why we talk about it in product design. Story is based on conflict. And so if we ask someone, hey, tell me about the last time you used Salesforce to go back to that CRM answer. And if they don't trigger this moment of like, oh man, I was in there the other day, like your story about the, uh, the accounting software, right? It's like- yeah. My wife always goes back and forth between she's our our CFO and she goes back before back and forth between zero, which is very streamlined and super focused, and then QuickBooks, which is great. It can do anything. But there's this every time she's used zero, it's like she runs into a wall of I'm trying to do something and it literally won't let me and I want to throw my laptop out the window. That's a story. I'm trying to do something. I ran into a conflict and the resolution, I don't have one. I'm just pissed off. Those are the moments that you want to get out of these conversations and you get them by asking open-ended questions. You ask past-based questions, not future. Let's talk about how we translate those now. So I'm, I'm in the conversation and I've triggered a story. I've triggered you, you're frustrated and, and I'm feeling it. I'm actually, I'm engaged as well. How do we take those stories and then translate them after the conversation into something actionable or something worth investigating further? Yeah, so the the great thing, well, the not so great thing about user research is that we are focused on the negatives. Like there are very few reports that I write where I'm like, yay team, you know, because <laughs> because like of course we'll shout out the things that we that we did well every once in a while, but we are focused on the negatives, which mm -hmm. is great, as you said, for storytelling, because it's character conflict. It's throwing computers out of windows, <laughs> it's rage, rage tapping. Uh, like a uh, rage clicking, uh, it's like throwing your iPhone against a wall, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so what essentially what happens is when you've heard stories, what you want to do and what user research is great for is starting to identify patterns because it comes back to this like contradictory statement of like, people are different, but we all have shared experiences. <laughs> so What's really great about user research is when you uncover these stories, you actually learn that people have very similar pain points. They just can like manifest in slightly different situations. So the, the thing that I tend to do is I use like these, these tags, let's say, or these labels, let's say, when I am uh, taking notes or listening back onto these conversations, which I will just make a quick plug whenever you can, please record them because <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, a lot yes. easier to listen back to them and actually pay attention. Um, but essentially when I'm listening to, to these conversations or taking notes on them, I will label something as like a pain point. And mm -hmm. I will say like, if we go back to like, because uh, the accounting one is one that I've experienced, if I'm interviewing people on this accounting software, and I'm listening to these stories, and I'm hearing, oh, and then I can't change the currency. Oh, like the currency doesn't work. Oh, multiple currencies. Then I start saying pain point currencies. Mm -hmm. And then what I can do is I can, I, I can take all of those labels out from that from those like snippets of information and put them on something like Miro, 
or just use plain old post-its and a whiteboard and you start to see, oh, wow, like out of the, out of the 10 people that I talked about, six of them mentioned yep. pain points and currencies, yep. you know, or seven of them mentioned uh, like automation flows of mm-hmm. proposals, contracts, and you can tell that I have a lot of problems. Yeah. <laughs> 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 if anyone yeah. is listening, um, the accounting <laughs> software field is ripe for this HH. Yes, <laughs> yes. Solopreneurs and accounting, please. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, but then you start, like, the thing is, is then you start to see, like, these patterns that are evolving, and you can start to understand what the different pain points are and get some weight behind them, mm-hmm. right? It's going from, like, an individual story to like looking across these stories to see where the like overlaps are. And that can help you with understanding, like, let's say that you do have this idea of like creating an uh, accounting software for solopreneurs. What that can do is that can start to help you understand where you put your focus first. So instead of doing this whole thing where we're taking years to perfect an entire accounting software, this can help you define that minimum viable product, right? So it's an accounting software that has like these like four basic features. You can uh, do multiple currencies, you can do basic automations and, you know, e-sign on directly onto the platform and reminders mm-hmm. for things like payments do, right? You have like, if those are like the, the top pain points that you've seen, you have your MVP, you can always build from there. Right. But you have a start And then now that you're in the habit of like actually talking to people, you go out with this MVP and you say, break it. Right. Yeah. Kill it. You know, like uh, tell me all the crappy things that come from it (laughs) because your product, you don't want to create secondary problems for people. Right. Right. And you do that by testing it and understanding it further. Right. And those secondary problems, if they do come up, are other opportunities for building out. At some point in the last... I don't know, 10 years, whenever Lean Startup came out, probably 2001, I'm, I'm making up a year. I'm not sure when it came out. It was, it's, it's an old book at this point. It's no longer point. recent. Yeah, it came out sometime in the aughts. Um, I think it was 2001, 2003. But, uh, but that whole MVP term came out of Lean Startup. And at some point in the, in the time since then, everyone seemed to have forgotten what an MVP is. And, and we get a lot of people who are like, all right, we want to build our MVP. And it's got these 20 features and it's on four different yeah. platforms. And it's, and it's going to target, you know, everybody and also their moms. And yeah. the, the, the thing about user research is when you get these categories that kind of come up and they're going to come up so naturally, uh, we do these product sprints with customers where we do this kind of one week, really intensive. First, we interview the founders and then we get user feedback later on in the week. And it is crazy because you, you get this wall of comments, just this wall of little things people have said, you've got 200 sticky notes. And then you go back and you start pulling them and going, okay, let's okay, these all are, are all talking about currency. These are all yeah. talking about invoicing. And you get this thing and you'll see like, oh my God, currency, we have 50 cards on the board about currency and then 25 about two other things. And then we've got like three cards about other things. Yeah. There's your MVP, right? It's yeah. not it's not do all of these things poorly or cheaply or with bad design. It's no, just nail that, go take it out and then see if there's anything to do from there. Yeah. Yeah, it's really funny because I I see MVPs go in two directions. The direction you mentioned of like an MVP that's a final product, which doesn't actually exist because there's no such thing as a final product or we'd right, all be right. out of a job. 
Um, and then I see, <laughs> and then I see the MVP that stays as MVP and just like, people are like abandon ship, you know, onto the next thing. Like it's like this like invoicing software within this product suite. That's like an, definitely an MVP. And then they're suddenly doing like something else in the product suite, like creating contracts and like legal advice, mm-hmm. you know? And so like, you just have this like scattering of just like really weird products that are all at an MVP stage. Right. But like, I, I think that what you, but user research gives you the backlog, mm-hmm. right? As you said, like, here are the groups of the sticky notes. That's your MVP and your backlog. Like the mm-hmm. work is never going to stop. Right. Like, it's not like, it's not like because he didn't do like the, the invoicing and the MVP, it's going to like suddenly disappear. Right. It will still be there for you to like work right. on. And then you can continue to do, that's why continuous research is so helpful. Because if you're going out every quarter and talking to like 10, 20 people, you're, you're just going to keep generating stuff to right. do, but it's stuff that's like valuable and not based on like a gut instinct where we're crossing our fingers and saying, really hope this works. Yep. Yeah. So let's talk about that because I think that is a critical. So we've talked about starting off. We've talked about what these conversations look like. We've talked about how to turn around and make those actionable. One of the things that you've talked about on your site that I've read, and I think this is super critical, is that this is not a one and done process. We're not going to have five conversations and have solved our, our final product, like you said, right? Everything's perfect. We're going to build it over the next month. We're going to release it and then it's done. User research is an ongoing process. It's a, it's a conversation and we want, just like in product, we want these loops to be tight. We want to release something, get feedback on it and iterate. What sorts of processes can you put in place? What recommendations do you have for founders so that they can make these loops very tight so that they can make this a, a continuous process? Yeah. When I was working primarily, I, I love startups. That's like my bread and butter is like working in startups. So um, within that, it's very important to put this, those continuous um, kind of rolling research is what I call it in, into place. Um, and what that is, is it's something like, uh, like UX hours, right? So qu- every quarter we have 15 UX hours. They can go to uh, just talking to people. They could go to usability tests. They could go to like a a number of different places. But in this quarter, it should be more than 15, but I'm using a nice number just to not scare people. Um, (laughs) You know, um, you know, within this quarter, we're going to, we're going to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, or it's something like because user research doesn't only have to be going out and doing interviews and usability tests like we have secondary research, right? Mm-hmm. We we can triangulate, you know, so that means we can look, we can, we can dedicate like uh, something that I did that was actually really fun, uh, which doesn't really sound that much fun. But hey, uh, I'm a bit of a nerd in that way <laughs> is at, at the end of like every month, um, I sat down with the product managers and a few devs and the designers and we went through all the customer support tickets. And it was like a customer support ticket day where we like just like went through them and we pulled out like what are the biggest issues that people are having. You know, um, another thing that we looked at is like um, what are the biggest cost items? So what are the biggest cost tickets? So things that the organization is having to pay our customer support for more in order to solve them. And then so within that, we like pulled those things and then we brainstormed some really cool ways that we could solve that. And that went into the next sprint, right? So it's, you don't have to only do like this, like going out and talking to people where, where that is a fantastic thing to do. There are other ways to supplement. So like, again, 
looking at customer support tickets, looking at reviews. If you have a product, mm-hmm. looking at the reviews, um, looking at competitors yourself and like doing like an, an analysis of what this competitor is actually doing. Um, watch <laughs> my favorite thing is watching people use competitors. Mm-hmm. So like, um, getting, getting a user that, um, uses a competitor and having them walk you through like their process on that competitor. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, but what it, what it really comes down to is just making the time. And I say on a quarterly basis, because that tends to be the easiest for people to like understand. So it's like, you know, um, X amount of hours or like every month during the quarter, we're going to end the month with like a customer, su- uh, customer, um, support ticket party, you know, um, and, or we're going to like look through our reviews or we're mm-hmm. going to, um, watch people using competitors, right. you know? Um, so, but it's, it's just making sure that you're just, putting those things into place and actually planning them. And I would invite people, like I would block it off on their calendars. I mean, of course that was like a 10 or 15 person company. I wouldn't do that with like (laughs) 500 people. I would probably get fired. Um, But like inviting everybody to these too. So like, it's an open thing, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not just like you safeguarding it. It's an open thing that people can like uh, be a part of because then you foster curiosity and then more people get involved and then there's more things happening and, and it becomes this like really cool snowball effect. Right. Something that, that I think about a lot is this idea that product is actually a lot more uh, holistic and, and larger than I think people think it is. And that it's not just the thing that you present to your users. It's not just the thing that they, they touch, that they click and feel it's your messaging. It's your landing page. And it's also all of the internal experience you have. So, if your customer support team hates the way that something is working because it's the, it's the thing they spend all their time on, if it's something that you're spending so much money to solve on a, on a day-to-day basis, this is also part of your product. These sorts of, this user research come from internally too. Yeah. Um, that's that's a, a critical place of product improvement as well. Yeah, I, we did, um, at one company that I was working at, I did a service blueprint. Um, and so we looked internally. So we looked externally at like the customer journey that somebody had from like purchasing our product all the way to implementing our product. And we looked at it from their point of view and also internally. And we found so many issues in our internal process that were cost, uh, that was costing us so much money and also bad vibes on the customer side. So, you know, like you, like user research, um, is not just about getting people to like your product. It's also, mm-hmm. it's, it's actually about like business. It's about mm-hmm. cutting costs and increasing revenue. Right. right. And that's why it's just, it, it is really important. Again, I'm biased, but it is really important <laughs> right. in that sense that like we are, we are like companies exist to make money for the mm-hmm. most part. And like we can help that with doing user research. We can right. increase that revenue, increase the profitability of a company and reduce the costs internally. Yeah, I love that. I absolutely love that. Um, oh, I, one thing that I do want to just circle back to real quick, because I think it was super important and, and I, I ran right past it, but uh, secondary research. Um, we talked about support tickets. We talked a lot about support tickets. Um, what other forms of secondary research would you recommend? Uh, something that, that I've noticed doesn't really come up in conversation until it's too late is metrics or monitoring. Um, people are 
we've got this 20 page onboarding process and we're losing people on page 15 because it's a really stupid question that nobody wants to answer. We don't know. We're not tracking that. Uh, what, what sorts of secondary research methods and stuff would you recommend people think about ahead of time? Yes, as much as you can data. Like I, I used to, so I come from a stats background. Uh, my master's in psych was like statistics. Um, and I threw out statistics as soon as I went, like quant research. I was like, bye, as soon as I went into user research. Cause I was like, I love talking to people. But yeah. like data is just so incredibly important. So like, it can it can also help you because like we all we all know that qualitative research has small sample sizes, mm-hmm. right? So what you can do is to supplement that small qualitative sample size with quantitative data, right? So on a usability test, if you're testing one of your products like on on a um, with a usability test, and people keep dropping off that like some some part of your funnel check back into your analytics that you have, which hopefully you do have, to see if that's a wider problem. Right. So it's it's really about kind of like putting these things into place. So like um, putting putting making sure that you're putting analytics into place, making sure that like you're you're looking at what is it that we're trying to achieve and how can user research help that? Like if we are looking to um, understand, like increase retention, let's say, what are the pain points that people are experiencing that are causing them to leave? when customer support tickets also come in. So then looking at talking to people, customer support tickets and your data analytics is just like the key. So yes to to data. I would also say Google Scholar Mm -hmm. is like a fantastic place. Like Forrester also has stuff on it. Like, so like looking on the interwebs uh, in terms of like secondary data and like any sort of academic papers that you can find or um, like... Trend, places where you can go to understand trends in the market, mm-hmm. super, super good for, um, for secondary data. Um, and then again, like looking at, you know, your reviews, what people are saying about your product. Um, those are all fantastic ways to incorporate that secondary data. So we've talked about a lot of things today. We've talked about sourcing users, customers for these conversations. We've talked about how to actually get value out of them. We've talked about how to go from one of these conversations into something actionable. And we've talked about how to turn this into a process that that is continuous, something that's not just done once, but is actually kind of a part of your company. I want to highlight your website, Nikki, userresearchacademy.com. You have a ton of really incredible content on there. You've got a newsletter, you've got courses. Can you talk a little bit about what's on your site? Uh, anything in particular that you think that people should go check out? And I also want to be clear, this is something for any kind of founder, but especially non-technical founders, people who may not have this experience. This is something you have to get better at. You have to be an expert at this if you want your product to succeed. So you've got to learn from people like Nikki who are already experts at this. So let's talk about your site a little bit. Yeah, yeah, of course. Thank you. Um, so yeah, as, as you mentioned, I have a few different courses on there. One of them that I would probably recommend if you're interested in getting to know user research more and getting like a really in-depth foundation on these skills, um, is my user research mastery course, completely self-paced online. I just, there are so many templates and guides and everything that's like on there uh, for for you to use um, that really helps you to like kind of like facilitate how you are doing this and how you're incorporating this into your process. And that's like really from like start to finish, 
Some of it might not be as applicable for you, um, such as like if a stakeholder comes to you with a research request, like you might be the one who is creating that research request, but it gives you the tools that you need to know how to think about research and then how to put it into practice and how to get those little nuggets of information from that story, right? That you just heard. So that course is, is, um, super helpful. Um, I also have a course where I go through a study that I actually did and you can cool. like listen to me doing interviews and, and kind of like, as we mentioned before, pick apart all the things that I'm doing wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's, that's a fantastic, um, super fantastic, um, course as well. I also, I help companies with this. So if you are a company that wants to understand a little bit more about how to incorporate, incorporate user research into your process and how to get some like fundamental training on that. I'm there. I'm also there for that, but really go on my website. If there's something that you need, contact me. I probably have an article or two on it and a bunch of freebies that have to do with it. So, um, really just like see what you can find there. And if it's not working out for you, like shoot me, shoot me an email and I'm more than happy to kind of like help out and chat through your issues. Awesome. Don't discount the stakeholder thing for these folks though, because a lot of them do have stakeholders. They've got Mm -hmm. investors uh, and your investors are going to be asking things. Again, we see it over and over again where people have these pitch decks and they're like, you know, the number one concern for moms nationwide. And it's like, no, it's not. <laughs> but if you can, and, you're, and if you're in a VC meeting, they're going to they're gonna look at it and they're going to go, no, that's not true. If you can turn around and be like, actually, here are 50 <laughs> user research interviews that I've done. And this came up every single time. That's a much better pitch than trust me. I'm pretty sure this is true. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. (laughs) Awesome, Nikki. Well, this has been one of the most educational episodes for me personally as well. Um, I've learned a lot. User research is something that we do as a company. It's something that is, there's always something that we're learning about it and always, like we said, mistakes that we're making that we're trying to improve on. So thank you so much for this. Um, Really appreciate you coming on. I had a blast. Everybody, again, check out Nikki Anderson at userresearchacademy.com. You can find her on LinkedIn as well. And uh, thanks again for coming on. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.